kind of like we all have our own side of the bed and I have my own side where I like my laptop to sit. <laughs> um, welcome to everyone here this morning and welcome to those who I have not seen here before and to those who have come back from traveling. It's, it's great to have everyone back here in the house of God and together. Singing that last song, All Heaven Declares, you, you understand how relevant that is to God, today's message and He's on the throne and forever He will be. Um, I've recently been looking into the, the doctrine of, of God and, and doctrine meaning the, the set of beliefs about God. And in looking into this, I've been looking into His, his character and and an example of some of these attributes, sometimes these are things that we don't always hear about. Uh, things like his omniscience, his knowing everything, and his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, his holiness, his love, etc. And we have a God who has a lot of attributes, but sometimes I wonder, do we, do we know them and have we explored them? And how do we come to know what these attributes are, who, who God is? And to me, there's a simple answer. And the answer is found in the Word of God, the Bible. And we can look in a lot of other places. We can look at creation. We can look at other, other areas to try and explain who this God is. But it always comes up a little short. And it always comes a little, up a little fuzzy. But we get a clearer picture of who God is through His Word. And it's because he makes himself known. This isn't a God who sits up on high and doesn't make himself known. In Romans 1.19, God, God reveals truth about himself, his truth. And there aren't these codes that we have to decipher as to who he is. But it's clear as into who he is. And the most important thing is he wants us to know who he is. So we have this window to look into, into who God is. Now, some might ask, is this just knowledge, the doctrine, the theology of God, these, these big kind of words that might get thrown around, something that only philosophers and theologians debate, or does it actually have meaning for us? Does this actually have purpose in our lives to understand the attributes of who God is? Because by understanding who God is, we begin to understand ourselves better. We begin to understand our identity as believers. Now that might be a radical statement, that God forms our identity. Because in this world, I, I determine my identity. No one can tell me who I am. But as believers, in this God, we believe that God actually intervenes and forms who we are and understanding who God is helps us understand who we are as his creation one large topic that I want to look into today an attribute of God or who God is is God's sovereignty and that is a it's a very large thing to look into and I understand that today I will just barely scrape the surface. But my goal is that at least we start to re be reminded or, or think about the enormous implications of God as a sovereign God. 
I understand how vast this topic is. And I just hope that afterwards we continue to think about this and explore this and not just leave it here this morning, but continue this as we leave those doors. Now, there's a word called, or a belief called deism. Has anyone heard of deism before? Yeah. So, deism is a word that, you know, or a belief system that has the view that God created the universe and everything, in, including the natural laws, etc. However, after creating everything, deists would believe that God has withdrew and left us to our own devices and that God is not directly involved with his creation anymore. So deists don't believe in miracles and they don't believe that God has any intervention in our world or that he won't even intervene in our lives. And maybe we know people like that. Maybe people don't necessarily classify themselves as that, but they believe in a higher power. But that higher power is just something that's around. But we as Christians believe that God does have an active role in our world and he does influence humanity in many ways. And we see this through scripture and maybe we've also experienced this. One way that we as believers demonstrate this and maybe you don't realize how you're demonstrating the sovereignty of God and it's through prayer. We ask God to intervene in our world when we make requests through prayer whether or not our requests are granted but we do this in belief that God is going to intervene in our reality. That's what we're asking for when we pray, isn't it? For a lot of things, we want God to intervene and change things in the world or change things in our lives. If we didn't believe that God can intervene in the world, then we wouldn't make requests to him. Even those who may not have the strongest faith in times of trial might bend their knee and ask God to intervene in their world. Without even realizing it, they start to acknowledge that maybe God does have some power in this world and some sovereignty. And if we deny the sovereignty of God, then we cannot claim that God is God. So I've thrown this word around sovereignty a little bit without defining it yet. So if you can just put up the definitions for me. So I've got three definitions from three different scholars. So the first one by Norman Geisler. So sovereignty is God's control over his creation. Dealing with his governance over it, sovereignty is God's rule over all reality. Charles Reary. The word means principle, chief, and supreme. It speaks first of position. God is the chief being in the universe. Then of power. God is the supreme in power in the universe. How he exercises that power is revealed in the scriptures. A sovereign God could be a dictator. God is not. Or a sovereign could dictate or dedicate or abdicate the use of his powers. But God doesn't do that. Ultimately, God is in control of all things, though he may choose to let certain events happen according to natural laws which he has ordained. R.C. Sproul says, If there is any element of the universe that is outside of his authority, then he is no longer God. In other words, sovereignty belongs to a deity, a God, 
Sovereignty is a natural attribute of the Creator. God owns what He makes, and He rules what He owns. So we see, when talking about the sovereignty of God, that we are talking about God in control of all things. And this is a large attribute of who He is. So today my goal is to have, for you to start to have confidence, or if your confidence is low, to have confidence in a sovereign God who we claim to have a relationship with. Although may, we may not always understand God's will and understand this sovereignty and provision, some might even struggle to understand this attribute because of trials. And why doesn't God fix things? However, the Word of God shows us clearly that God does care about us. And the more and more and more that we seek Him, we will be confident in His sovereignty. Now, a portion of Scripture that I'd like to look into is actually a follow-on from my last sermon when I talked about uh, the Israelites being captors in Egypt. Um, if we can go to Exodus 13, 17, 22. So when Pharaoh let his people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer. For God thought, if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of the land of Egypt, prepared for battle. And Moses took with him the bones of Joseph, who had, uh, who had required a solemn oath of the Israelites, saying, God will surely take notice of you, and then you must carry my bones with you from here. Then set out from Sakoth, camped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went in front of them, in a pillar of cloud by day, to lead them along the way, and a pillar of fire by night, to give them light, so that they might travel by day and by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, left its place in front of the people. Now we have a portion of scripture here where where God demonstrates his, his leadership of his people. We see that the Israelites have left Egypt and now following this God who freed them. Now he directs them on a certain path very carefully. He doesn't send them to a place where they're going to face battle, not because of being afraid of war, but because he did not want them to want to return to their former lives. Imagine going from one captivity and then you're going to go face potentially another one. God's presence is also stable here. He didn't leave them by night or by day. 24 hours he was with them. And he wants to lead them to a fruitful place. And he does that with them. Doesn't leave them alone to their own devices. He retakes them out of captivity and he's still with them. And it shows that God has thoughtful leadership, not careless, because he's careful where he takes them as well. And following God is not, not always easy. 
and requires this continual reinforcement of faith for us to continue to trust in God. And the Bible makes it clear that following God is, is not easy. It's, it's actually can be quite difficult at times. Jesus never said to his followers that it's going to be easy. He's very clear about that. In Matthew 10, 22, But the one who endures, uh, you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we see here that God cares about his people and he leads them. Now we enter into Exodus 14. And this is probably a portion of scripture that we all know quite well, either growing up in Sunday school or sermons, even movies. Um, and it's a battle of the sovereignties, in my opinion. And this is where the story really intensifies for the people of God. And in Exodus 14, 1 to 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Thyharioth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Sethon. You shall camp opposite it, by the sea. Pharaoh will say to the Israelites, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So when God led his people to where they were, he could have led them into battle against the Philistines, but if they won, they would boast on their own achievement. Or maybe they would show little reverence for what God has done for, to get them to, through that area. But he leads them to a place and they're trapped. They're trapped by sea and by another force that will come. And so far, all the Israelites have known, at least this generation of them, is the sovereign power of Egypt. And God knows that there's going to be one final confrontation between them, Israel and Egypt. And it's staged God stages it for him to receive the glory. Not to demonstrate to the Israelites that he is all-powerful, because they've seen that. But to demonstrate that God's glory is the ultimate power among nations. The story demonstrates that in a doubting and cynical world, that God's power is above everything and is the real sovereign power for those to believe. So we see that they get to this point and they're camped in front of the sea and they're trapped. And the king of Egypt, so in verses 5 to, to 9, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed towards the people and they said, what have we done letting Israel leave our service? So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 picked chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out boldly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his chariot drivers and his army. They overtook them, camped by the sea, by Harioth, in front of Baal Zephon. So Pharaoh 
And the Egyptians realized, what have we done? We have let our whole workforce go. But maybe it's a bit more than that. But the Lord hardened his, his heart. And all he can think about, and his people can think about, is getting them back. And it wasn't about getting them back peacefully either, in my opinion. It wasn't about just corralling them to come back in a nice way. And he goes out to meet them in significant force. He's there stretching, he's flexing his muscles. This is the power that I have. And he wants to demonstrate to them this power by going out there to meet them with all his chariots and, and his army. And in Exodus 10 to 14, naturally Pharaoh catches up to them because he had chariots and the people were mainly going by foot. And now the Israelites get sight of the Egyptians and they know the brutality that they faced before as slave drivers that, they, that the Egyptians were towards them. And they see this fully charged army coming after them. And they naturally fear and then they start to criticize Moses but it's a criticism towards God in many ways. So in verse 11, they said to Moses, was it, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They want to go back to order. They want to go back to oppression, regular food, supply from the empire. And although they know this is hard living, but at least it's predictable. They know what's coming. They know at least the hardships that they face. Now they're following a God of their ancestors, solely relying on him and the unpredictable future and the current trial tests the very core of their faith. Egypt is the only sovereignty they knew. And although it was a hard regime to live in, they knew their future, and they knew their place within this regime. But yet God did not want them to remain in this regime. He did not want them to submit to this sovereignty, the worldly sovereignty, because the barriers they face to serve their God and to know their God. And at this point, they're looking to God, they're, they're feeling hopeless. They feel vulnerable and they call out to God. And what is it? They call, yeah. Is this what we usually do when we face the trials? Do we just get angry fix it God make it better why are you allowing this to me why did you put me here the Israelites have forgotten what they've witnessed maybe not long before this of God demonstrating who his power and yet they get frustrated and start to doubt this when trials start to take over so easy for us to fall in this trap we're so happy with God's leadership when things are going good that we struggle to see him as a sovereign God and a caring God when the path appears blocked in front of us and we've got nowhere to go 
Now this is the position the Israelites are in. They have death, punishment, etc. behind them and a blocked road ahead. Yet Moses says to them, Fear not, for God will deliver you. In verse 14, The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Moses is aware that God is alive, active, decisive in crisis. And what is he to get them to do in the midst of all his trouble? Stop and focus on him. He got them to focus on God in the midst of crisis. They need to sit back and watch. Just as hard, I think. God provides provision in the most unlikely way to these people. They would not have thought that this is how God will go forward. This is a, they see water blocking their path. How are we going to go through this? It's only naturally to think that. Now God says to the Egyptians, we'll go after you, but I will gain glory over them. Now this is the famous scene that we all know. And it is the parting of the Red Sea. They have nowhere to go. Enemy to the back and a, and a blocked exit. Surely you would think that God would destroy them with this pillar of fire that he had this whole time and just make them go back the other way. But God takes them forward. As the waters divide, the Israelites begin to cross, cross the sea. Can you imagine a scene from this Egyptian's perspective? They think they got them trapped. And then the waters part. They have a cloud and a pillar of fire stopping them. They have pursued their former slaves and thought how easy it would have been to capture them. They knew how vulnerable they, 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 these people were. They had oppressed them this whole time and knew that a show of strength and power could, would probably do the trick. Yet they meet supernatural obstacles. Now this is a nation that, that believed in the supernatural. They had their own gods, their own magicians. Um, supernatural, supernatural gods was not new to them. They were witnessing something unheard of, a god fighting them and destroying them. nation without an army, no fighting skills are protected purely by a supernatural power they come to the realisation in 1425 let us flee from the Israelites for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt even the Egyptians come to realise God's glory this is a story that calls us to faith and to acknowledge that God is the only real power in this world now after the Israelites cross the sea, Moses stretches out his hand again and the seas come together. And thus the Lord, in verse 30 and 31, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work the Lord had did against the Egyptians. So the people feared and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. 
does this story mean for us? Maybe, maybe it is just a story. Maybe it's so much more. I know that so many critics will start to break this down and talk about the impossibility of this supernatural act of in nature and whatever else, that it's not possible. Yet the writer didn't put this here for it to be picked apart. It was put there to show us God's capability in this world. But not capability, his actual control of what happens with his people. There are a lot of connections here through the story that we have just heard to our discipleship today. God rescues us from captivity, from a former life that we knew. A life that stopped us from knowing God fully. Yet it's the saving grace of Jesus that has brought us out of the captivity and into a new life, being led by an almighty God. And yet, that's not always easy for us. It was hard for them when they came out of captivity into a new world where they had predictability, knowing in control of their own destinies, and then they hand this over to a God who we just trust and the unpredictable future. And that's not easy for us. More so today in our age because we're given so many things to be able to control our lives. We were once reliant on the sovereignty of this world. Or maybe we still are. I don't know. That's maybe for you to look into yourselves and see if that's the case for you. But God shows us that living under His sovereignty, what that looks like, what that looks like through the Egyptians and the Israelites. Imagine how different our lives would look by submitting completely to God. Although the path ahead is unknown, unpredictable, yet we know what God is leading us. Yet trusting that all circumstances in our lives are actually a part of a sovereign God's will and plan. We constantly have the sovereignty of this world chasing us from behind, looking to recapture us into the slavery. Yet this is not what God wants for us. He's never wanted his people or humanity to not know him. We see his constant intervention in the world. I was talking to someone at work who doesn't necessarily believe in God. But they made a very astute observation of Christians. She told me of a Christian that she knew that was stressed and worried all the time about a lot of things in her life. And this person I was talking to said, I don't understand this. They believe in this all-powerful God, and yet they're so scared of a lot of things. And this made me think that this is probably so true for so many Christians. We understand this saving grace, freed from captivity, and yet we still live a life of fear. 
Is it not natural to have some fears though? I mean, children, parents fear for their children. Yet God says, fear not. And he shows leadership and sovereignty in the world as a sign to not fear. Does it not seem logical if we believe in an almighty God to trust in that? Some might say we haven't experienced God's sovereignty. And my argument to this is, especially those who are believers, if you've not experienced it through Christ, we think so small when it comes to this perspective of God. We just think about ourselves and the most immediate around us. Yet God has the larger picture at hand. The Israelites had no idea where they were going. They had no idea what was ahead of them. But God did know. Sovereign God has demonstrated through his word that he does intervene in this planet. That the idea of deism doesn't fit the Bible's perspective of God or even a perspective of the true God. Now I've got a picture up there. Imagine living under this picture, knowing this. How much does that change our perspective and our worldview? I'll finish with this. Psalm 47.2 For the Lord, the Most High, is awesome, a great King over all the earth. Let us not forget that. Let us not especially forget that when he seems so far away. May the Lord bless his word.